0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Mohammed Kojabash, Nikos Athanasu, and Michael Black. They are with the Max Planck Institute for. Intelligent systems, and we're here to talk about their most recent paper, a paper called Vibe, that we will get into in more detail. But Mohammed, Nikos, and Michael, welcome to the Twinel AI podcast. Thanks. Nice, nice to meet you. To be thanks here. for having us. Awesome. Let's start by having each of you share a little bit about your background and uh, your role at the Max Planck Institute and. You know, what got you? What in your background led you to this work, and what your general research interests are? Uh, Mohammed, why don't we start with you?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am Mohammed Kojabash. I'm currently a PhD student in Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems, in Perceiving Systems Department, uh, doing computer vision and graphics research. Uh, so I did my bachelor's in computer engineering in Istanbul Technical University in Turkey and my master's in Middle East Technical University in Turkey again. Um, so during my bachelor, so I tried to explore different areas that, that is interesting for me, ranging from robotics, NLP, to computer vision and machine learning. I continued for a master's degree in computer vision and machine learning, and I started working on human pose estimate, estimation, which has broader implications and um, application areas in the community and yeah and then I started doing a PhD again in the same topic
2: cool cool thank you Nikos so hi I'm Nikos Athanasiu so I also doing I'm also currently a PhD student at Max Planck Institute uh, I'm in my first year so a little bit about my background I st- I completed my my bachelor's and master's degree in uh, computer engineering in Greece in National Technical University. During the first year of my research, I started doing research basically on natural language processing, but then I wanted to combine natural language processing, machine learning with computer vision. So I started my PhD at Max Planck Institute. I'm currently working on motion, understanding, decoding, and how uh, we can combine motion and actions with uh, language semantics. I would like to combine machine learning and mathematical modeling with human interactions. I think that's the most interesting part of the machine learning uh, research. And that's why I followed the PhD degree and started last September. Awesome,
0: awesome. Thank you,
3: Michael. Well, I'm Michael Black. I'm a a director at the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems. And I've been working on problems in human motion estimation since the early 1990s. And I became interested in, in human motion because computers can't really understand us and be full partners with us until they understand our facial expressions, how we move, how we interact with the world. And I'm motivated by Aristotle, who said, to be ignorant of motion is to be ignorant of nature. And I think almost all my research focuses on how things move and trying to get computers to understand that motion. A little bit about my background. I lived all over the place, uh, educated in the US and Canada. And uh, before I came to Germany, about nine years ago, I was a professor at Brown University and um, uh, been in Germany uh, since 2011 and came here to co-found this uh, new institute for intelligent systems that brings together scientists studying artificial intelligence and robotics and using techniques all the way from machine learning, uh, like we're talking about here, to physical systems where they make new materials for soft robotics and so on. It's a very interdisciplinary and exciting uh, field.
0: So, Mohammed, you mentioned that your are area of interest is in pose estimation. In fact, the paper that we'll be talking about, VIBE, uh, which is short for Video Inference for Human Body Pose and Shape Estimation, is kind of in the the direction of advancing uh, pose estimation. Why don't you share a little bit about kind of the broader landscape of pose estimation and where your paper is hoping to contribute? I think we've you know, folks in, in the audience have probably seen various images that come from pose estimation papers and, and uh, tools that show kind of like a stick figure superimposed on a picture of a, a body. You know, what you're doing is a little different than that and that you're doing kind of 3D pose estimation. Talk a little bit about the broad landscape that your paper fits into.
1: Sure. Uh, So basically, the pose estimation uh, is the task to estimate human pose um, from images, videos, or any kind of sensory data. But in computer vision specifically, we tackle with the problem of estimating human pose from images and videos uh, specifically. And we can define human pose in different kind of ways. Like, as you mentioned, one of them would be to estimate some key points. Like, these are some sparse set of key points only that can be the joint locations or some limb locations of the human bodies. Or we can also try to estimate the whole body, like in a more structured and structured manner, like a human body mesh. So, these kind of representations have some kind of a hierarchy so a sparse set of key points are really lacking to explain the real human body. So, And also, we can estimate the 2D or 3D sparse set of key points. But when we proceed to more higher, richer representations, like human body meshes, which can define the whole body, like the whole pose and shape, which has some richer information that explains the human body. So uh, in in this paper specifically, we try to estimate the whole body mesh, which is uh, more explanatory than only a sparse set of key points. And also we tackle the problem in 3D space, uh, which makes the problem more difficult uh, to estimate from the images or videos only. Great. And and Nika, you mentioned that one of your interests is in
0: applying vision to to motion, can you talk a little bit about the
2: motion aspect of this and where that comes in? So we are aiming directly to capture motion. So we are starting from a plain video, uh, which are multiple images, a sequence of images. And from those images that we have, we detect the person in the video and we estimate its his or her 3d pose and shape so uh, many many methods have looked at
3: this problem but uh, the vast majority focus on single images so estimating the human pose in one image and a, and a video is just a sequence of single images so you could just apply those techniques one frame at a time if you do that you tend to get a jerky reconstruction that's not uh, moving smoothly and naturally like a human would uh, and so the one of the observations here is there's more information in the video sequence in the continuity of the motion. And if we can train the computer to exploit that by teaching it what it is to move like a human, then we can exploit information across a long video sequence and get better results than you would get by doing it frame by frame.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And as a, an example of the better nature of the results. You've got a great picture at the beginning of the paper that shows some areas where the current state-of-the-art method in a, a challenging video doesn't seem to track very well, uh, whereas your method performs better. What is that kind of reference method that you looked at and what's the the data set that you are uh, building your model with?
3: Well, the, the competing method is from one of our very good friends and colleagues, uh, Anju Kanazawa, who actually did an internship in in our institute. So it's a friendly competition for who's going to have the state of the art. Uh, Anju's uh, Anju's amazing, and she's a professor at Berkeley. And this, her she also extended the uh, a, one of these single frame methods over time, but in a, in a different way. And um, one of the things that distinguishes our approach was actually inspired by something she did earlier, uh, which is to uh, use a discriminator that knows something about, it's trained to distinguish between um, fake human motions and real human motions. And to enable that, uh, we exploited a data set that we made public uh, uh, back in the fall called AMASS. And mass is a data set of about 45 hours worth of, of human motion capture data that uh, captures a wide range of um, how people move and then uh, we use that to teach the computer basically what is a, a good human motion and what isn't
0: and when you say human motion capture is this kind of regular video or is this the kind of thing that we will often see with humans in like white suits with like the yeah. balls it's, around them
3: yeah the latter it's uh there are many uh, this is commercial motion capture data with markers and infrared uh, reflective lights and and so on so very much a lab setup um, and many groups around the world have made small amounts of motion capture available every every data set though is in a different format um, and researchers were struggling to get enough data to train deep neural networks. As as we all know, deep networks are great and uh, they can do a wonderful job, but they need a lot of data, they're data hungry. And uh, so what we did was pull together a dozen different data sets and put them all into a single format. Uh, This representation of the human body we use called simple SMPL. And by unifying them all, it provides enough training data um, to really do something bigger. Hmm. So Mohamed, what,
0: you know, tell us a little bit about your kind of first steps in tackling this problem.
1: Sure. So the first step in general is to create a baseline um, for your method. So what we did uh, in the first step is to create a model that can only predict uh, some pose and shape from a video without using any intricate or complicated architecture. So at that time, the first thing we try, so there is a method called human mesh recovery, which estimates a pose and shape from only a single image. And um, we try to extend this human mesh recovery uh, to estimate a sequence of poses given a video uh, using a recurrent neural network architecture. So a recurrent neural network is basically a, a type of neural network that lets you integrate some information from past frames or past data points. So we take each uh, output of CNNs from human mesh recovery method, and we try to estimate the the sequence of poses from this recurrent neural network architecture. This was uh, the first thing that we try to see how the model performs with the available data. And in the next step, we try to integrate AMAS using a generative adversarial network approach. So imagine we have this baseline method that produces some noisy or inaccurate estimations of the motion happening. And and if we integrate a discriminator to the training stage, which tells if the predicted motion is plausible or similar to real-life motion, then we can supervise this baseline method to produce better uh, looking motions. And this is what we did in the final stages where we introduced Amas data set and the discriminator, which supervises this baseline generator we had.
0: Mm. So let's go back to the initial stage. You've got a CNN whose output you're feeding into an RNN. What part of the CNN are you feeding into the RNN? Is it kind of the output of a final classifier stage, or is it some earlier layer in the CNN that you're using as input to your RNN?
1: So uh, let me first summarize the human mesh recovery architecture. So we have a CNN that extracts the image features and then a regressor, which is a couple of MLP layers that estimates simple body pose and shape parameters. So the CNN part is fully convolution, a fully convolutional model. And so we get rid of the regressor part to train the uh, vibe. And we only use the CNN part to extract the image features okay. per frame, And we feed these image features to recurrent neural network we have. You talked about the
0: discriminator. Is the discriminator trained
2: separately or kind of end-to-end as part of training the, the CNN? Yeah, so actually the generator generates some predictions and we train the whole thing end-to-end. So the discriminator takes as inputs the generator's predictions of the pose and shape and uh, it takes also samples from a mass. So a mass is exactly what Michael previously explained as the unified uh, motion dataset. So we use the discriminator to validate if the sequence of poses that we have is plausible it can actually be a a real human motion. So the discriminator's job is by taking those two different pose sequences to compare them and uh, refine the generator's output sequence. So we train this whole thing end to end, and the discriminator takes the real fake samples from a mass and our generator.
0: When I think about, the again, this picture that you created for me, Michael, with the, you know, the folks in suits with the the balls that um, process and in, in those images, I, I think of those as kind of fairly sparse points on the body that are being captured and yet the, these models are, you know they look to be like fairly high you know resolution, fairly fine grained. How does the model go from kind of this sparse motion capture to
3: more robust looking mesh? Yeah, great, great question. Um, that, that's a whole nother paper. So uh, indeed, when you capture um, in, a, in a motion capture lab, you get a bunch of sparse markers. And then uh, the traditional method solves for a skeleton that explains those markers. Now, uh, we replace that traditional solve with a different kind of solve. We actually take our 3D body model. This is the simple body model and fit it to the marker data using a process called MOSH for motion and shape capture. And uh, uh, this was a paper that appeared at SIGGRAPH or SIGGRAPH Asia a few years ago and does a really good job of taking sparse motion capture markers and fitting the most likely body surface that could explain them. It turns out that from 20 to 60 sparse markers on the body, you can really figure out what a person looks like. You can think about it as a very, very sparse 3D scan of the person. Mm-hmm. And with a powerful statistical model of the body, it's by, by how body shape varies and how pose varies. You can fit a sequence of these very sparse markers and get out this kind of realistic detail that we can then use to train other methods.
0: Maybe, Mohammed, you can help me get to the like the core element of this paper that helps it perform beyond the the previous method what what's kind of that kernel of contribution here innovation here that helps get to that incremental performance and you know how did you arrive at that did that, was that obvious you know in setting out at this project and you just kind of put the pieces in place and it all worked or was there a evolutionary process here that helped you arrive at the final architecture
1: so the major contribution in this paper is this motion discriminator, um, which tells if the predicted sequences are fake or real. Okay. So th- this is the major contribution we have, and this is the one that we get the most improvement um, in the results. Uh, in the results, so actually it it is quite in- so v- from the human mesh recovery paper uh, from An- Anju Kanazawa, we already know that using this kind of a discriminator for single image pose estimation helps a lot to have plausible bodies. So, and we thought that intuitively this should help for a sequence of poses. And we already know that AMAS is a very large scale data set, which has different kinds of motions, which happens in real time and performed by the real human actors. And this intuitive reason led us to uh, create this architecture. So yeah, during the development phase, we had a lot of technical difficulties and we just get through them by doing like fine-grained experiments on which part improves which. This led us to the architecture we have.
0: What were some of those technical difficulties and the experiments that helped you overcome them?
1: Yeah, for example, tuning the... We have this discriminator and generator, and we we have this discriminator losses uh, that tells if the sequence is real or fake, and also some other losses that tells uh, the 2D joint locations and 3D joint locations of a given uh, input video. So um, we had to tune these two kind of losses to agree uh, on a on an optimal solution. Uh, this was one of the uh, things that we really take.
3: Tech- maybe it's worth telling the audience also that you know one of the problems here is we want to get 3D human poses in, in detail, and yet there's not much ground truth training data where you have uh, video sequences with the true 3D human pose um, in correspondence. And uh, there are large data sets of labeled 2D human poses, uh, but not 3D, and so this is a one way to combine sort of weak 2D information with very strong 3D information. They're not paired, so a mass doesn't have any images; it's not associated with any real videos. But the discriminator learns what it is to be a motion, and then the generator learns how to go from images to 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 3D. Poses. Yeah,
2: exactly. Mm. Actually, that's what what's what the. The, the the high overview of the paper is we get the 2D data, we output some pose sequences, and do, then we use that uh, huge data set, Amas, that has various motions to refine those predictions. To be able to not, uh, between the two sequences, one from Amas and the our sequence, our generated sequence, the discriminator ideally uh, should should not distinguish between those two so she, she uh, the discriminator should be 50% see, uh, sure about which one is the real and which one is the fake
0: and that's a great point so the discriminator is operating purely in the motion domain it doesn't know anything about images or you know the the frames of the video mm-hmm. it's just answering the question does this seem like the kind of motion that the human body does based on the AMAS data set and yeah. the CNN and the other parts of the architecture are more focused on extracting motion from the, the video frames. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Cool. And so the, I think one of the points that you make early on in the paper is that the, the motion that and even the examples that you you give, it's not like normal motion. It's kind of complex motion that is not something that you you see every day. Is that was the MoS dataset uh, kind of curated to identify a, and include lots of examples of complex motion in it, or is there something in the process that is kind of extrapolating to that kind of complex motion?
3: It's a good question. There's a mixture in there. There's a lot of mundane things like walking. It seems like in motion capture labs, people capture a lot of walking. Uh, so, uh, But there are some data sets that are a little bit more extreme, uh, have more interesting poses. And in fact, we captured um, something we call extreme poses, which we hired, hired some gymnasts to come in and do basically the, the wildest things that the human body can do just to really flesh out the space of of what's possible and there's a one other thing that happens in motion capture a lot for video games people often capture something like kicking a ball and uh, turning left or turning right in very discrete movements Um, and so we have something called a transitions data set in there as well that captures people doing one movement and then transitioning to another movement so this is again trying to expand These these transitions are things that you might not think to capture uh, on your own, but are really part of a natural human behavior. So uh, there's a mixture in there and it's rich enough um, for this task. Mm
0: -hmm. Are are there specific things that Mohammed or Nico, having worked with this data set for this particular task, jump out at you as, you know, I wish the data set had more of, you know, kind of, Category X because it would help you build more robust models?
2: Yeah. Basically, that uh, a mass dataset has almost all of the available mock-up data by different labs captured and in different conditions. But it doesn't have a lot of in-the-wild data. That's the thing that it's missing, the extreme poses and the in-the-wild kind of data. So someone... Doing extreme gymnastic exercises or having like motion without a constant without a constant pace and having different poses and uh, like opening the hands or the feet extremely quickly or slowly or I mean we could always uh, benefit from more variation of extreme and quick or fast motions. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and, and now that we are starting to have you know i'm thinking like sporting events that are captured with many cameras from lots of different angles does that ever able to take the place of motion capture types of information or are we not kind of sophisticated enough to correlate all of that and and produce the kind of data sets that
3: kind of traditional motion capture is able to provide have you
0: looked at that michael at all yeah, so uh,
3: it's a, it, let's come back to this idea that, you know, traditional motion captures a bunch of sparse points on the body, not very right. detailed. Uh, with images, we've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of points on the body. Right? They just happen to be in 2D, but they are, are much richer in some sense. We have all this facial expression information, details of the hands, subtle uh, you know, subtle motions of the body, breathing and so on. You can see all that in a video. So our our hope is, you know, one day that uh, motion capture from video will be more accurate and more detailed than motion capture from a traditional mocap system today. We're not there yet. This is a step in that direction. I think your intuition about combining multiple views is a good one. And it's something that we've looked at in the past and continue to look at. Um, Can we combine uh, multiple 2D views of a person and get you know, really high quality output? I think the answer is yes. I, I haven't seen a system yet that competes with the most accurate mocap systems, um, but then the most accurate mocap systems, you know, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and have you know, dozens of cameras. I think if you built a video-based mocap system of sort of, of that sophistication, uh, I think we might be getting close. Mm-hmm.
0: And does does lidar types of systems or like what we've seen with the Connect does that play into this as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We also work with Connects. Um, The new uh, Microsoft Connect for Azure is uh, allows you to put multiple Connects together, so you can actually have several of them looking at a person. That's a really promising direction for a lightweight, easy to set up system. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't have anything to show yet, but uh, okay, yeah, cool,
0: cool. Uh, so, Mohammed, again, kind of going back to this opening picture in the, in the paper, you know, it's, it's easy to see where your model is outperforming the traditional model and kind of eyeball the, the delta. How do you evaluate that performance more concretely and mathematically in the paper?
1: So we have several data sets that has ground truth 3D joint positions. And one of them is a data set called 3D Poses in the Wild. Again, uh, that is developed in our group, in Perceiving Systems group. So uh, this data set um, is captured in the wild. Uh, and there are some subjects wearing some IMU sensors uh, on their body. Uh, and so these IMU sensors can be placed under the cloth, so it doesn't affect the, um, the image quality. And so you can get the 3D joint positions from those IMU sensors. And we, uh, the, major dat- the the most prominent data set we try is this 3D PW, 3D people in the wild data set. And so basically what we do is we take the sequences from the data set uh, produces our results and also the other methods results and compares what is the distance between the ground truth uh, joint positions, and the predicted ground-to-joint positions. And also there are some uh, other indoor uh, 3D datasets we also use. One of them is called Human 3.6M, and the other one is called MPI, Informatics 3D, Human Pose Estimation Dataset.
0: The the 3D poses in the wild data set is that, you mentioned it uses a particular kind of sensor. Is that sensor... And the kind of sparsity of that sensor similar to what you see in a mocap system, or is it you know somehow more more dense? I'm curious about the relationship between the primary way you're comparing performance is based on kind of these sparse representations. I wonder if that leaves something to be desired or an opportunity in terms of the ability to to kind of capture what's happening in complex motions with these sparse data points on the body?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. So we use their uh, commercial mocap suit called from Xsense. It uses these inertial measurement units. I think there's 10 or 12 on the body, but we don't just use that. Um, uh, we also use a camera tracking the people around and we use 2d measurements Uh, about the the joint locations in in those images to uh, precisely align the estimated 3D body pose with the images. And so we have a a technique that fits again, our simple SMPL body model to these um, multiple kinds of measurements, the IMU measurements and the 2D measurements. We also have to solve for the camera translation and rotation and things like that. Um, but putting this all together gives reasonable, we, we don't call it ground truth. We call it reference data. We're a little careful about that. Uh, you know, it's not the same level as a, a motion capture lab, um, but you get the benefit of being outside in in the wild with all the complex lighting and occlusion and things that go on in, um, in you know, in, in natural scenarios. Okay. It's a bit of a trade-off. It's the holy grail is to have perfect ground truth, where you know every single bit of the motion, with no crazy sensors to get in the way, outdoors in the wild. Uh, but it, you know, it doesn't exist.
0: So Mohammed mentioned earlier, you know, this process of kind of experimenting and identifying, you know, things that didn't work, with uh, particular emphasis on the discriminator. Nikos, I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective. You know, if you can share another example of something that maybe you thought was going to work and didn't, and how you had to adjust the approach to accommodate it.
2: Yeah, the experimentation procedure was, was tough, uh, but yeah, there are some a few points. So we tried, uh, one minor point was that we tried the uh, difficult CNN feature extractors, and that was a difficult uh, part to experiment with. But we quickly converged to an optimal one. And the other one is that we decided to use a self-attention mechanism, uh, which is uh, like a, a major kind of a major contribution, because actually the self-attention mechanism uh, is not so commonly used in 3D modeling or modeling of human motion. So we use the self-attention mechanism to get even better uh, results on the discriminator part, which is um, basically imagine that we are processing the human motion uh, sequence, and we are extracting some features using uh, two GRU layers, which is a type of very current neural network, as Mohammed said before. And instead of hard pulling or combining these features statically, we are using a weighted schema to combine those two, the, those features. So the features that we have for every pose in the sequence, we combine them as a weighted sum in order to amplify the contribution of uh, most important frames of the sequence more for the discriminator's uh, performance to improve. So that's what was two key uh, technical uh, difficulties that we have.
0: And were you able faced. to, Develop any kind of intuition over why that worked and what the attention mechanism ended up attending over?
2: Yeah, we have made ablation experiments that uh, we tested the um, uh, self-attention mechanism. So we tried two different things. So instead of using self-attention, we're trying pulling the features in a static way. So concatenating the average and the max of the features and using that for the discriminator to decide whether the motion is fake or real and we compared with that uh, case with our case and the performance seemed uh, to improve. It didn't improve uh, in such a margin that the results were extremely visible but for sure attention pointed out the frames that they should be corrected in the post-sequence and that they were the more plausible ones.
0: Yeah, When I think about the the various pieces of the model that you've built here, you've got CNN, you've got RNN, you've got this attention mechanism, you mentioned VAE in the paper. It seems like a lot of moving pieces and I'm wondering I'm wondering how that kind of impacted the 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 process and also from a like computational perspective if the training runs were very expensive and they, you're also working with video which is a lot of data how was the the process of working working on this from a just computational perspective did that have a lot of impact on the the way you approach things
1: Mohammed? so surprisingly um uh, the model we have both in training time and testing time is quite lightweight, even though we have lots of components. Mm. So um, so the heaviest part in our model is the CNN feature extraction part. And what we do um, during training, we pre-compute the CNN features and we don't update this CNN module. And we only train the recurrent neural network. And since the number of parameters is uh, quite low with the simple body representation, uh, our... Neural network is quite um, uh, lightweight, and um, okay. so we don't use like very deep layers. Only a couple of uh, a stack of uh, GRU layers is enough for us, and it didn't. It wasn't that difficult for us to train the model. So uh, actually, during training time, for example, like in half an hour or uh, in one hour, we can converge to a, a good solution since we use this already pre-computed CNN features. And uh, during training time, we also get rid of the discriminator and we only use the generator part and it makes the testing uh, much faster.
0: Okay, and then what about from an inference perspective? How
1: expensive is that? Again, it is not quite expensive uh, since we only have the uh, CNN, um, which is ResNet 50 in our case. Mm-hmm. which is again lightweight and it can run in real time in uh, GPUs and the GRU layer, we add, uh, it is not again, that expensive. So um, so in a commercial GPU, um, we can get almost real time uh, speeds uh, oh, during wow. interference. Very cool.
0: It, to, to maybe start to wrap things up. Uh, I'd love for each of you to kind of put this Paper and work, maybe talk about the things that you're either your top lessons learned or the thing that you're most excited about with this paper and its contributions and kind of how you see it, you know, moving forward in your own uh, research.
2: Nikos, do you want to start us off with that? Yeah, yeah, I can start. So I joined MPI uh, in September and the, I didn't know a lot of things for 3D human modeling. So, and this paper was, is is a very, very good uh, first experience. And I think the most important, one of the most important features of the paper is that it is clear. I mean, the contributions are clear. We use uh, a lot of unpaired 3D data uh, to refine 2D predictions, actually 2D uh, 2D predictions, um, actually 3D uh, meshes that were predicted mostly from 2D key points. And um, our implementation is converges fast. Uh, it can uh, create high quality and state of the art uh, data. It can the predictions are very high quality and uh, state of the art. And also, one important thing is that uh, we made uh, all the code and uh, data publicly available. Uh, we, we have detailed instructions for everyone, so it's uh, pretty easy for anyone if he wants or she wants to run and use our model and methods. We have clear in- instructions to do it. Great.
1: Mohamed? Um, so it seems that VIVE is working quite well on the restricted data sets for evaluation we have. Um, but in, in real life or in, in the wild videos, uh, there are a lot of difficult situations and a human motion is quite um, quite difficult to model because humans are capable of doing lots of different kinds of movements. And also in real life situations, we have um, like objects and scenes around us. We have occlusions caused by, uh, again, objects or other people. These kind of problems are still waiting to be tackled with and we also we show uh, with wipe um, we cannot perform well in uh, some uh, in 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 these kind of settings uh, so and in the future i mean there are lots of things that we have to do to model uh, human motion and also um, track and capture human motion from videos and this is what i learned in the process even though we have the state of the art model we cannot uh, solve even some basic scenarios still great right thank you
3: michael well i'm ex- really excited about this paper and where it's taking us but i'm always thinking about the next thing and uh, <laughs> humans uh, don't move for no reason they don't move in a vacuum they move in the 3d world to solve tasks and to change that world to have an influence on it you cross the room to open the door, you open the door to move through it, you move through it to get to the next room, you're solving tasks all the time. And in solving those tasks, you're interacting with the environment. Even if you're uh, interacting with another person, you're moving your face and you're gesturing uh, in ways that try to have an influence on the other person, maybe without any contact, but you're still using your body to influence people or the world. And uh, this work at the moment just treats the body in isolation. The body isn't embedded in the environment. The CNN doesn't really know anything about the environment. It's a single person not interacting with other people. I think there's a tremendous amount we still have to do to get computers to really understand us. Uh, and that those next steps will be about human-human interaction and about human-object, human-scene interaction. Mm,
0: great. Well, Mohammed, Nikos, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us uh, your paper and uh, what you're up to. Thanks. thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course,